Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Let's begin. Um, so, I'm Bruce Finley, um, reporter from The Post, and I'm thinking, you know, if I was a news reporter trying to, uh, thinking about committing a significant act of uh, journalism, I'd probably be looking for the uh, water struggles shaping the West. And I can't really imagine a stronger panel to explore that than this one, especially if to encompass the impacts of climate change and the uh, desire here to continue a growth and development boom um, in a semi-arid area and also to consider you know, whether our species uh, will put any limits on the reframing of nature to meet human demands. Um, so um, in brief here, you've got their bios, I think, but um, photographer John Fielder um, for 35 years has focused on nature in Colorado. And uh, he's influenced people and legislation with his work. I think it's 40-some books now of, um, of photos, including the amazing Colorado 1870 to 2000 collection, where um, John's modern photos are matched with uh, photos of the same landscapes in the 19th century by a pioneer photographer showing change. And John is also, through his work, trying to promote preservation of uh, open lands and rivers, the wildness that remains. And northern water manager Brad Wind, an engineer, uh, grew up on the northeastern Colorado prairie. And he has worked serving the people here since 1994 um, for this major water provider, northern water. It falls to Brad to deliver uh, the water to um, a population across an eight-county area that I think now holds one million, nearly one million people, um, not to mention an awful lot of Colorado's big agriculture, and it's an area where we've got uh, oil and gas industry planning to expand their extraction. And uh, so uh, along with Brad's counterparts at Denver Water and in Colorado Springs, um, they're running operations that altogether divert um, more than 500,000 acre-feet of water every year, uh, water that was bound for the Pacific Ocean back the other direction through tunnels under the mountains and the Continental Divide to the high plains here um, where it's a semi-arid area, and but most of the people live here. Um, And then um, climate research scientist Brad Udall has done definitive work on how rising temperatures are reducing the water in the Colorado River Basin. That's kind of essential radar now for our society uh, in this shift uh, to aridity. Uh, 
And I think that's sort of extending from the Rocky Mountains here all the way through those seven southwestern states. Um, so he's based here now at CSU's Colorado Water Institute, but previously uh, ran the University of Colorado and Federal National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Western Water Assessment. I think Brad has looked at problems on, around water on just about every river in the southwestern U.S. So the Colorado River Basin is so heavily tapped, um, you know, as the primary water resource for 40 million people that uh, the natural processes are pretty well stunted. And it, it probably is the work of uh, the American Rivers Advocacy Group that will determine uh, whether rivers in any recognizable form survive. Matt Rice runs their projects across the Colorado River Basin. And uh, Matt knows rivers close up uh, from uh, working as a fishing guide in Colorado, Montana, and elsewhere. Matt also worked with farmers in, uh, in Zambia for four years. So, and uh, Colorado Water Institute director, Reagan um, Wascom, is the kind of analyst uh, who you can count on to track what's going on and then help you unravel it and make sense. Uh, he has been looking at the water policy uh, and natural resources issues in Colorado for 35 years. And um, in particular, he's been looking at integrated use of surface water and the underground water and aquifers, um, and also at whether the agriculture uh, in Colorado can survive um, as we try to have this population boom and, and, and use water in so many different ways. So in launching our discussion here, um, I'm remembering what your SEJ director, Jay Leto, um, gave me as a starting point, dam removal. And I thought that'll be interesting. Um, you know, human civilization uh, from the start relied on manipulating natural water flows um, and trying to control water uh, using diversions and dams. Um, have any of you been to the bone-dry parts of the Middle East? Um, I think the first dam was around 3000 BC in Egypt or, or in Jordan. There's a 200-meter a weir uh, in Jordan, what's now Jordan, that um, coaxed water down a canal into uh, 10 reservoirs impounded by uh, earth and rock dams. And um, how many of you are from Colorado here? Okay, cool. So you know that Colorado's water engineers, as I mentioned, have gone exceptionally far in the uh, manipulation of nature flows by reversing that 500,000 acre feet every year of water uh, through those tunnels under the mountains um, out of the western half of the state that holds about 80% of the water resources and over here to the bone dry front range urban expanse uh, where we have 80% of the people. So this is where um, um, you know, federal authorities in 1990 uh, rejected the massive proposed Two Forks Dam to supply Metro Denver due to environmental concerns. But I could not think of any dam removal happening here. I know there's been um, enthusiasm 
to try to remove dams. And uh, as recently as maybe about nine years ago, when uh, President Obama's Interior Secretary Ken Salazar was flying over the West after that Kalamath River agreement had been signed, and. Um, you know, I think it sort of raised hopes then about uh, restoring relatively free-flowing rivers. But other than the removal of one small dam safety issue at one town in southwestern Colorado, um, we haven't really had dam removal. And uh, Colorado is aiming for the opposite. And the news here is uh, more trapping of water on the horizon or um, um, building more dams, potentially. So this booming headwaters state where the major rivers uh, that other states are counting on start up in the high mountains um, is now contemplating multiple new dam removal projects that'll have some major ecological consequences. I, I hung out yesterday at this uh, gathering of water lawyers who uh, navigate the uh, first come first serve water rights system where water rights to use water are bought and sold like property. And uh, some of them are going to be working with big utilities where managers want to need to be able to ensure that if we have another big dry year or that if we have um, um, a compact uh, curtailment uh, with obligations to another state, they need to know they have that supply. Um, Denver Water, as you all know, for more than two decades has been planning to raise up a dam and increase their storage of a reservoir. I think Northern Water has some sort of project in the works, um, both of them drawing out of headwaters of the Colorado River Basin. Um, last summer, uh, my news organization uh, talked with some lawmakers and revealed some plans to build multiple new reservoirs on the prairie northeast of Denver, um, designed to try to prevent as much buy and dry, but also supply the booming water, groundwater dependence southwest Denver suburbs. Um, Aurora's water manager has talked about a 90,000 acre foot reservoir in South Park. And there's some groups in northwestern Colorado looking to divert and dam water from the White River uh, to create a massive new reservoir. So can rivers survive? Um, or can natural processes be simulated adequately uh, to sustain ecosystems. Let us start with Brad Udall. Um, Brad, how much less water is there out there in the Colorado River due to the increasing temperatures? What will we be looking at in 10 years? And with the precipitation trend away from slow release snow and toward faster flowing rain, um, what are the merits of trying to store a whole lot more water up here near the headwaters of the rivers? So thanks, Bruce, and good morning, all. Um, so it's really quite clear at this point in time that climate change is impacting the flow of the Colorado River. And that, I say that based on both my work and work of other scientists, including Connie Woodhouse and including a brand new NOAA paper that just came out this year. Um, you know, we used to think about dry droughts, right, in the 20th century, but scientists have coined this new term, hot drought. And the idea here is that increasing temperatures can increase the evaporative load and thus uh, cause the decline of river flows. Uh, Jonathan Overpeck and I in 2017 suggested that the reductions 
of about 17% per year since the year 2000. Of that, about a third of it was due to higher temperatures. And we put an error bar that went all the way up to 50%. Um, another study led by Dennis Lettenmeyer that came out last year suggested that number was higher. It was, well, at the upper bound at 50%. And this new NOAA study actually says 50% as well. Although, interestingly, that study suggests a large portion of that decline is not due to temperatures, but actually due to a climate change-induced reduction in precipitation. And frankly, that's the first study of its kind that has pointed to a precipitation decline due to human causes. Um, I'm, I haven't really dug into that study, but it's at least intriguing and supports some of the basic idea around uh, the American Southwest that we would see a drying, much like we'll, is going on in the Mediterranean and other areas um, at about 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south. So first point, climate change is here in this basin. It's already affecting the flows. And guess what? As it gets warmer, those flows are going to decline due to yet warmer temperatures. Overpeck and I suggested up to 20% by 2050 and up to 35% or more by 2100 should precipitation remain flat. And the precipitation angle here is difficult because of our inability, frankly, to uh, actually pull a signal from the noise out of all the climate change models. Um, so um, impacts are going to get worse. Uh, Bruce, you mentioned the term aridification that's now being bandied about because after 20 years, it's pretty hard to claim that a drought that we, you know, a, dr a drought implies a temporary condition, right? And this appears to not be temporary. I do want to caution, you know, in this wild world of climate change where we see weather whiplash, you could get a decade of wet flows. Um, and you can get a 2019, right, that had um, a record-setting avalanche cycle and uh, a record-setting precipitation amount for a certain number of months th this winter. Interestingly, uh, some work I've looked at shows that 2019 runoff actually didn't pan out as we might have expected, again, likely due to a climate change signal. And I will share with you before I end here, uh, a recent trip I did, seven days in the Wind Rivers in September, record temperatures while I was in there. Every creek less than five feet wide was bone dry, walked through marshes where you expected to get wet feet and they were crunchy. Bigger creeks were warm and full of algae. So what we had developed late in the year this year was a flash drought, and a term you're gonna hear a lot more about. So going forward, plan on hotter everywhere. Um, earlier runoff, right, everybody knows that. This huge flow reduction risk. Um, increased uh, uh, water temperatures, more fires in the west, um, impacts on water quality. And with regard to this higher storage, more storage question, I'm going to actually punt just a little bit on that. But, and maybe we can get to it later, because I feel like we need to get to you all. But if you're under 40, Go learn your lessons of history, right? The Sierra Club got founded because of Hetch Hetchy. Remember Echo Park. Uh, remember dams in the Grand Canyon. Remember Two Forks. Remember Narrows Dam out here. These were the premier environmental battles in the American West. And I don't think anybody in the Colorado water community wants to go back to those. I mean, I, we've all experienced them, and they're not really that much fun. <laughs> OK, so um, let's turn to Brad Wind. Um, Brad, to what extent does the population growth and development boom force us to embark on uh, new storage? And um, how far can conservation take us 
And is our society's current timelining timeline for permitting new projects um, responsible, <clears throat> given the demands that we're likely to face on the horizon? Th thanks, Bruce. Good morning. Um, you know, let me answer another question or, or make a comment about one thing we're, I, <clears throat> I think, blessed with here in Colorado, although we don't necessarily all agree on the document. The, the push for a Colorado water plan, which some of you might be aware of and maybe you've heard about that over the last uh, few days you've been here, um, uh, I think has allowed us to um, see, uh, I'll read the same Bible, so to speak. We don't necessarily all agree on it, but I, I think it's, it's helped us through some conversations about what the future might hold. And I would encourage you all, as you go back to your other states, uh, if there's not that kind of a document uh, and you're in a state that's got challenges, um, uh, I think it's a good idea to make that investment. It's huge, um, and it's it's something you can't write and walk away from. It needs to be recrafted and kept temporary. But it, I think it's helping us as many headaches as it may have caused. It's helping us here in the state to, to get through some of these uh, challenges. Um, <clears throat> In terms of the growth we're seeing, it's, it's unprecedented, um, in some ways maybe not welcomed by some of us who are natives here, but it's happening. Uh, I think it's driving to some degree more conversations about the linkage between uh, our land use planning and the needed natural resources to, that should go along with that. And maybe that's, in some of our minds, a better place to talk about uh, how we're going to serve the public better in the future versus <clears throat> just the reactionary mode that many water developers have been in over the years, perhaps Northern Water as well at times, of just letting the growth happen and then reacting to we've got to find a supply. So um, that's certainly not in Northern Water's um, authority to go out and, and uh, bang the table about land use planning, but I, I, I'm, I'm sensing we're talking more about that, um, which I think will allow us to be better water managers moving forward? Will this growth rely on every for every acre foot associated with our, our human footprint here in Colorado? If it requires a half acre foot per person, a third acre foot per person, we can probably do better over time, but those are some numbers of, of uh, present day. Does that require the same amount of storage? Uh, not necessarily. We're gonna find better ways to use some of the existing storage we have um, <clears throat> keep it fuller, perhaps, uh, partly worrying about the things that Brad talks about. Um, so I don't think it's one for one, but the reality is whether it's when people show up, they expect some water supply. We're doing one of a few things. We're either using very junior water rights, so water right yet to be appropriated, and you'll hear often that there's none of that left. There's some. Um, there's some on the South Platte here in eastern Colorado, less on the Arkansas. Some would say there's a little bit left on the Colorado River. Um, but, th but there's some of that going on. And, and, and the way you reposition that is just a reality of you've got to reposition that supply that might be only available in February or March or June during snow, snow melt. To make it available to people, you've got to reposition that water to make it available 12 months a year. Um, so thus, storage is going to be part of that. But again, I think we'll find creative ways to utilize existing storage so that we're not building um, storage for every single future need. Um, to one of your latter questions in terms of these processes that require us to get the necessary permits often 
uh, for projects that Northern Water is pursuing, a couple fairly large complex pro projects, um, 12, 15 different permits are required. That's a 15 to 20 year process. Um, <clears throat> you'll hear a lot from the water community say, that's just totally crazy. I'm not necessarily in that camp. That seems a little bit long to me, um, not just because of this, the, the investment needed to get through that, but um, things get stale. And, and then you get in this dilemma of you got to reevaluate things. Uh, but I think what it does do, at least over a decade, maybe that's appropriate milestone or 15 years, in the projects we're involved with, it has turned over nearly every rock. And I think we were developing better projects that are uh, reversing some things that impacted the environment in devastating ways. And the conversation over those years has led to us being a lot smarter about how we develop future water supplies, at least for, for northern water. Perfect. Um, John, you have helped the uh, world uh, appreciate the existential beauty in, uh, of rivers and um, which, you know, and the ecosystems that depend on free-flowing, fluctuating rivers. How has your feeling about your work changed in the current situation where folks are looking at uh, perhaps tapping rivers more? Good idea to store more water to increase our resilience in the face of climate change up here near the headwaters? And uh, what limits do you see, if any, in the reframing of nature to meet human demands? Welcome to Colorado. Well, none of this is an issue because I can just Photoshop things the way that I want them to be. <laughs> I live in kind of a parallel alternative universe. <laughs> so as Bruce mentioned, I've been photographing Colorado as a nature photographer uh, for almost 40 years now, publishing books and calendars. And along the way, um, I've rafted every major river that can be rafted in Colorado. Um, the Upper Colorado, one of my favorites. I live in Summit County, so I can hop onto the Upper Colorado near Kremling and go all the way down to I-70.0, 65 miles all by myself. There's only one scout-worthy uh, rapid called Rodeo Rapid. It's an old diversion dam, and I've done it a dozen times. So last year, I was photographing great blue herons and bald eagles along the river, which are ubiquitous. And I decided that <clears throat> because I've done this so many times, even though I did scout the rapid, because you got to go into a rapid just the right way and you don't want to go sideways because the back wave will flip you over. So I left $13,000 worth of uh, Canon 5DSR digital photography equipment plus my point and shoot sitting out on top of the pack as I entered uh, Rodeo Rapid and I couldn't get the boat straight in the one flipper wave. <laughs> and went upside down and lost all $13,000 worth of So if anybody needs a new camera, all you gotta do is scuba dive under Rodeo Rapid near Burns, Colorado. So yeah, I'm the guy who's been, like Brad and the rest of us here, been up close and personal with rivers and every other freaking ecosystem in the state. I backpack, and now Llama Pack, um, pretty much I've been everywhere in Colorado's 66 million acres and around the West, a lot of other major river systems too, and mountain ranges and the 
Wind Rivers uh, also. Um, so to answer your question, I am not um, a big fan these days of diverting and taking more water from our rivers and doing what John Wesley Powell um, long ago hoped we wouldn't do, and that is take water out of one basin and take it to another. And I think he was prescient, and now we're seeing the price that's paid by upsetting ecosystems from one place to another, but overarching everything that I see, and by the way, my life is spent now half the time in the wilderness or on rivers photographing, and then half the time public speaking, doing slideshows and publishing books that discuss these issues and hopefully provide some solutions, at least a thought process. But what shocks me the most these days, and I'm already scared from what I've heard so far, and I'm even more scared as I think about my four grandkids and what they face because of global warming. I refuse to use this word climate change. It's a cop-out. It's a planet getting incredibly hot with the symptoms that Brad and others will and have been talking about. And it's the death knell for uh, ecosystems and for human beings. It, without healthy ecosystems, we're goners. And the speed with which all this is happening, and I, I'm not really that smart. My IQ is like 60. But uh, gone to Crested Butte over the last 40 years where the first real climate science was studied. You know, Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory is one of the most productive high-altitude field research stations in the world, and they've been studying by introducing artificial heat to ecosystems for like 30 years up there, and they kind of were the precursor to understanding that stuff was happening, and if it did happen the way they thought it would, it wouldn't be too good for humanity and for ecosystems. But I knew it was going to be exponential way back when. I just had this feeling that once the oceans got warm, that was the climate control system of the planet, and there was no going back unless you could somehow stop burning fossil fuels quickly, which we're not doing. So the impact of a warming planet the impact on the circulatory system of the planet are free-flowing what's left of them rivers, which is just like in my body and your body without a healthy circulatory system, that's it, you're dead. And our planet is dead. And I'm at the point now where there is no time for BS and for um, inappropriate discussions that have no productive impact on solutions and quick solutions and that means for me, no more water out of rivers, no more dams, no more water from one basin to another. And here in Colorado, that means no more water from West Slope to East Slope to uh, take care of growth that we can't control and that there are solutions. So I'm not saying there's a problem and I'm not going to help with the solution. And the solution is conservation. I was, and, and one other thing, and then I'll, I'll quit. Um, I was at grandkids' um, pre-football game, choir, singing, third grader school in southwest Denver last night, and there is 80 acres of irrigated Kentucky bluegrass on all the ball fields, and everybody's home in Highlands Ranch. And don't tell me for a second that we can't, stop irrigating Kentucky bluegrass lawns that we can do, for example, what they did in California 
you know, where they paid you not to irrigate your lawn and do xeriscaping and things like that. And for any water provider here to tell me that conservation is not the answer, um, is not being realistic about taking the bite. Did any of you read the Dune trilogy back in the 70s like I did? You're probably too young for that. But that's what we got to do. And if we don't do that, that's it for humanity. It's, it's it for rivers. It's it for eco systems. If we don't have healthy ecosystems, we don't have living human beings. And one thought I'll leave you with, and I hope the rest of the panel will address it. In Colorado, 85% of all of our water rights are owned by farmers and ranchers. The farming and ranching, the ag business, is about, depending on who you talk to, a 13 to a $30 billion a year industry. Um, our latest study called SCORP, State of Colorado Outdoor Recreation Plan, that Division of Parks and Wildlife conducts every five years to determine economic impact of outdoor recreation and tourism, skiing, rafting. We started skiing yesterday, by the way, in case you didn't bring your skis. Um, the impact of that industry is now, as of last year, 62 billion is what we generate by protecting blue skies, clean air, clean water, open space, build more parks, not undo parks, protect ranches with conservation easements and the water supplies that go through ranches. And it made 511,000 jobs. That is double, triple, quadruple ag, yet in Western water law, nature has no title to water because it was never given beneficial use status. How crazy is that? So you got most of that money and most of those jobs being generated on the west side of the mountain range why would you want to take that water and bring it over here when you're getting a far better return over there? And if you can control all the footsteps and the impact on the ecosystem, then it's a benign thing, tourism and recreation. Um, so I hate to say it because I love farmers and ranchers and I've done books about farms and ranches because conservation easements protect <laughs> ecosystems. But why in the world would you want that kind of imbalance? 85% of the water here, which is only a small portion of the economy, and you got all these people moving to Colorado and begging for more dams, reservoirs, diversions from the western slope. Conservation and water sharing, where we lease water on a short-term basis from farmers and ranchers. We don't buy and dry. It goes fallow for a couple of years. You go work with some more front-range farmers and ranchers, and the water, that 85%, solves the one million acre-foot problem that we need in Colorado by 2050. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, American Rivers um, has helped preserve uh, a bit of the wildness that's left along the Yampa River the last relatively free-flowing major tributary of the Colorado River. What's our realistic expectation for uh, other rivers? Uh, and um, uh, hypothetically, if uh, preservation of uh, sort of natural free-flowing rivers were to emerge as more of a national priority, well, what do you think that would mean for uh, that expanding population of 40 million people um, in that uh, watershed? Um. I might not need to speak. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, hi everybody. This is not my first time following John Fielder on a panel. So, <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to provide, uh, I think, our perspective. And, and uh, 
Um, yeah, I think John is right on about, I'll kind of answer your question starting from the end of it, I think, um, is, is right on that, that uh, there's, there's more dependence um, on healthy ecosystems, free-flowing rivers, especially in a place like Colorado on the West Slope where, um, you know, that demographic is, has been changing, but I think is, is really, really changing now. Um, the politics of of recreation when it comes to water management decisions and policy hasn't caught up quite to agriculture, but that's something that NGOs like American Rivers are are working towards to, to help help get get it there, right? Um, so the Colorado River Basin, like other basins um, in the Southwest and throughout the world, uh, in arid climates, um, you know, we have real issues as far as as far as water scarcity. That's that's increasing risk um, for for cities, for farms, certainly for the environment. Um, and so, a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of thinking and a lot of collaboration is 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 being kind of put towards figuring out these solutions. Um, and 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 one of it, oftentimes they're short sighted. Is is well, we can kind of build storage to 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 fix our problems, right? But in a place like the Colorado River Basin and in others, Colorado River Basin can, can store four, four, almost five times as much water as the river provides already. Um, so we have a lot of storage. A lot of, most of that is in, in Lake Powell and Lake Mead um, that are, has been well documented. Our, both reservoirs are, are half or less than half full. So we have, we have the existing storage. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, we, we, we will continue to see projects real and unrealistic, I think, proposed in, you know, throughout the Colorado River Basin um, because of climate change for water supply. Uh, just last year, um, and I won't get kind of into the, into the details, but um, even from places like the city of Aspen that, that are, you know, that, that certainly consider themselves uh, international environmental leaders, um, they were they were pushing to maintain water rights so they could build dams on Castle and Maroon Creeks, um, which are two creeks, two tributaries to the Roaring Fork that flow right through town, um, that would have ultimately flooded the Maroon Bells, Snowmass Maroon Bells wilderness. Um, and part of their reasoning for this is that they needed climate resiliency. They saw a future, a very arid future, um, but that's obviously not that's not what we should be doing. You know, we should be. We should be, as we're planning for for uh, a water scarce future, as we're working collaboratively and collectively to reduce risk to people, to farms, to the environment. Um, we should also be be making sure that that rivers and healthy ecosystems, especially the ones that are intact, um, stay that way. So I think that's that's I think getting back to kind of the changing demographic and, and the changing demographics and the and the shifting of economy in a place like Colorado from agriculture and other other things to the environment um, we need to make sure that those 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 issues the protection of our last best places um, the preservation of local communities through ecosystem protection are um, are are ingrained in our planning um, you mentioned dam removal before. Um, there is certainly a, a, a growing dam removal movement throughout the country. It's not a not a strategy necessarily here in the Colorado River Basin, but I do want to point out um, that there are there there is something 
there is a pretty remarkable transformative project that's being considered and being worked towards right now in uh, in the state of Colorado, and that's that's the the Windy Gap bypass. So there's a there's a main stem reservoir on the Colorado River in the headwaters in Grand County, Colorado, that um, is part of Northern's uh, uh, water supply infrastructure um, that has caused significant water quality problems over the years, including um, kind of a key uh, a key point for uh, whirling disease, which has killed hundreds of millions, if not billions, of rainbow trout throughout the world. Um, and there's a plan to, to move the, the main stem Colorado River around the Windy Gap Reservoir. So we don't remove dams, but maybe we can move rivers around them um, to, to lessen the impact. And so while not as, as sexy as Elwha or the Condit Dam on the White Salmon or what's happening on the Klamath, um, it's significant, and, and I think it, it, it represents an opportunity to restore some of our impacted rivers throughout, not just in Grand County and Colorado, but throughout the Colorado River Basin. Okay. Um, Reagan, so I guess we have a ballot, or... I guess we have a uh, ballot initiative in Colorado. We're going to legalize sports gambling, betting, raise some money for those water projects, which aren't that fully defined yet in the water plan. But uh, what about this agriculture? Um, to what extent should cities, can cities, expect transfers from agriculture to solve their problems so maybe they wouldn't have to set up so much new storage? And um, to, uh, to what extent does local food production capacity need to be maintained? Um, and also, I, I think some of your research might help us answer if, if ag became a whole lot more efficient, would that solve everybody's problem in their use of water? Thanks, Bruce. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here. Boy, you've seen a, an array of Colorado weather, haven't you? And pretty, pretty typical, but uh, it's good to have you all here. So Bruce said two things there that I caught my ear. He said, how much water can urban areas take from ag? And he also said, how much water should urban areas take for? That's not the same question, Bruce. That's two Can you handle both those? I'm going to handle both of them. I think that's great. So the, the can, hey, that's, for me, that's easy. My answer is as much as they're willing to pay for, okay? And it's not going to be cheap, and it's not going to be without consequences. So the, the water that Brad is managing now is in the sixty-five dollars to $75,000 an acre foot range, Okay. So what that means is tap fees on the front range of Colorado are now north of $30,000. So to build a new single-family home, you've got to buy into the existing infrastructure, right, and, and water. So that's becoming quite expensive as growth comes along. But, hey, that's not the whole story, right? It's not just buying that water. You have to have the infrastructure to move that water, to store that water, to treat that water wastewater on the on the other side of it so those costs are just going to um, go up and become more difficult really for us to manage here on the front range and uh, you all need to remember that ag water rights are in the river may june july okay those cities are going to want that water you know 365 days a year so you still have to have a place to store ag water even if you're going to bring it off the farm you got to put that water somewhere. So if we go with John Fielder's vision of no dams, no diversions, no trans mountain projects, 
if you want to grow the water supply on the Front Range or in other places in the Colorado River Basin, it's going to come from ag. And John, John said he's okay with that. Let's, let's talk about it. I think there are some consequences there for doing that, right? So we'll, we'll deal with the food production a little bit separately, but certainly those green irrigated lands around our cities create buffers. They create cooling for that urban heat island. They create view sheds, open space, wildlife corridors, carbon capture potential, waste management assimilation capacity. There's a lot of amenities that we need to think about when it's just about drying up ag land. And when urban growth sprawls out across irrigated lands, it's pretty much an even exchange, that water as you build those houses. But it's when we put urban growth and new business on dry lands that we've got to move water. We have to dry up agricultural areas to move water into those regions. So that water has to come from somewhere. So Bruce asked the question, is, is buy and dry, that's what we call it in Colorado. You buy the water, you dry the land. Is that good policy for the state of Colorado? And uh, Brad referred to the Colorado's water plan. The wa and he called it the Bible. And you know, I noticed, Brad, you can interpret the Bible a lot of different ways. Have you noticed that? When I, when I interpret the state's water plan, my interpretation is, how do we grow the front range without obliterating or killing agriculture? Okay, that's, that's the denomination I'm going to start. Okay, you, you, can, you can start your own. But um, really, that's what the water plan was all about. How do we do that? And what are the mechanisms that we can use to sustain? Really, it's, it's cultural agriculture in Colorado, but I'm going to argue uh, there's some sustainability reasons there as well. So when you think about the idea of carrying capacity, and you're a water manager, is carrying capacity how many taps I can sell on the front range? We're talking millions and millions of people could, could live here if that's the only question. But if carrying capacity is about supplying food, other amenities for human beings in a given area, then it's a whole different conversation about what the carrying capacity is in Colorado. And that's not a conversation that I think we have in a, in a very robust way. So should we uh, preserve some of that food productive capacity uh, for the region? I think that's a, that's a policy question. That's a, a question that the human beings and the policy leaders here at this time need to think about deeply, and they are. We are a food importing area. You know, our food supply moves all over the globe, right? So transportation and transportation costs are a huge part of how we do food. In Colorado, we export just a few things. Winter wheat for bread. We export beef, dairy, potatoes. That's about it. And Yeah, beef. Yeah. So, I mean, everything else comes in, right? So I think, and this is, this is typical. So do we need that production, all of our production locally? Well, that's just not the way our food system works here. So that's, that is a reality. If you look at most of what we're growing in Colorado on our irrigated lands, it's roughage to feed beef and dairy operations. We can ship grain, but the silage and the hay and the alfalfa needs to be grown relatively lo locally to, to keep that um, production system in place. So personally, I think we should work to maintain ag in Colorado. I do think efficiency is part of that. Yeah, and I think that we're going to see ag retract somewhat. We're at 3 million acres in Colorado of irrigated lands. I think we're going to, um, you know, keep kind of chipping away at that as we grow out over ag lands, and ag is going to have to adjust, and that means that probably our livestock and our dairy industries are going to 
adjust as well as that plays out. And just one other thing that I think is really fascinating, and that is our farmers here in Colorado are really of, of two minds, a right and left brain on this and that. They all see the value of, of keeping the ag system intact because as you chip away at it, dominoes fall. There's tipping points, right? As, as you take water out and as you minimize the acres grown, the seed industry and the fertilizer dealer and all those things tip. So we're all of that one mind. We want to keep it. But when you talk to individual farmers, of course, we want to keep ag wet, but don't touch my water right. Don't touch my ability to, to you know, market that uh, at the highest value. So that creates a, a, a split brain that uh, uh, makes it hard for, to unite our, our conversation, I think, in Colorado. Bruce, I have some other comments, but I'm going to stop because uh, of time and we want to hear from the audience. Excellent. Yeah, this is open to questions. Um, please make them focused to the point. Um, n not only has this panel done a great job getting over a lot of terrain, but um, they have the uh, what information providing capacity that you would need to, to unravel the Western water struggles. So uh, it's all yours. Yes. Uh, for Mr. Witt, uh, Brett Walton, the Circle of Blue or Water News Agency. I'd like to hear you address how your uh, organization really thinks about water conservation what that means to you and the potential for conservation uh, uh, more so every day uh, we have about a two and a half three million dollar program at northern water uh, that we've reinvigorated just in the last couple of years um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities I, I won't be one who argues that that's going to solve the problem um, remember that 20% of our water here in Colorado roughly is used in for municipal industrial uses so we can whack away at conservation there but to think about another five million people probably conservation is not going to get there but i think the trick is to incentivize folks uh residents of cities to encourage them to use less and some perhaps some kind of a buyback program and to, to to grab hold of that water that otherwise some might view as wasted and then think about how do we use that water in the future. In some ways, we'll be selling more taps. Um, other ways, there's opportunities to take that conserved water, use it for the environment, and a lot of other creative purposes. So we need to find a way to, to throw a lot of money at conservation to incentivize um, better ways to use water, particularly in the municipal uh, sector, in my opinion. Yep. Just to follow up to that, since uh, I live uh, in, not far from here in Niwa, and I live near fields that are flooded several times a year when temperatures are in the mid and high 90s, a huge amounts of evaporation. So a lot of waste going on in agriculture, as we've mentioned. What incentive do I have as uh, just a one you know, small municipal water user to conserve when I look out my window and I see just huge amounts of water being wasted to evaporation? Oh, so real quick. When you ask a question, I'm told from the conference organizers, um, identify yourself. And also, if you're an SCJ member, um, you got priority. So um, who was who that to? I'm Tom Yulesman, director of the Center for Environmental Journalism. Excellent. Is that, is that for Brad? Anyone wants to ta tackle it, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. For Brad, I'll, I'll follow up. How, how about I, I know Reagan's got an angle on this as well. Well, let me let me. I live in, in Lafayette, so I live right down the road from where you live. And uh, as you might have read in my bio, I'm heavily involved in agriculture, uh, about 80 miles east of here. So in Colorado, and particularly on the South Platte, we're really uh, 
fortunate to recognize that that system uses and reuses water many, many, many times before it gets to Nebraska. There's another 180 miles of agriculture east of here. So albeit there's uh, inefficiencies associated with what you're seeing right there in Niwot, uh, being a landowner and a farmer uh, downstream about 80 miles, uh, believe you me, we capture every drop that runs off that field and find creative ways to use it in two counties east of here. Um, so in a basin-wide perspective, there's a lot of efficiencies within, your, within agriculture. It's hard to see that field by field. Um, for, for certain, but just a really quick, why are we flooding cornfields when we in Israel we have drip irrigation, all sorts of systems that would save huge amounts of water? Uh, um, those investments are being made. Um, again, there, there's, a, there's so much in that question. As we improve our efficiencies, consumptive use can actually increase. You actually lose more water from the system by having, frankly, healthier plants. Um, uh, so a lot of implications in that. Now, on the West Slope, there's a lot of arguments for, and I understand these arguments, for what, what we might call wild flooding on ranches high in the the mountains. Uh, those return flows do bend pit streams. Other up here know that story better than I do. Um, so to take all that away and create the most highly efficient farms, in my mind, has a lot of implications to the environment. Okay, just Reagan, and then uh, yeah. John's going to weigh in quick on that, and then we'll go to you. Luke. Okay, just just a quick quick follow-up, a couple of thoughts on that. So one, those flood and furrow irrigation systems are super efficient in the sense that gravity does all the work. The carbon footprint is essentially zero on those. Second, the evaporation that occurs in the field is an offset. So when we look at water consumption, and I'm really getting in the weeds here, there's an E component and a T component, an evaporation and a transpiration component. So within the field, that evaporation is actually causing cooling and reducing the total uh, tea out, out of the plant. So it's not, it may look like it's just an evaporative surface. Off the field, it is an evaporative surface. And so definitely we have the technology to, pre, you know, to use carbon to pressurize these systems and put it on the field much more efficiently. I think the future does look like that. Coincidentally, I've been commissioned by uh, the Community Foundation of Weld County, which is the recipient, right, Brett, a lot of your water, Weld County? Correct. Um, by the Weld County Community Foundation to do a book about oil and gas central in Colorado and one of the the most productive farm uh, districts in, in the whole state. So for four years, for now for two and a half years, I've been photographing farms and ranches and rivers. So two weeks ago, I was photographing the only carrot producer in Weld County, the only potato producer in Weld County, onions and um, cabbage, and I've been working directly with the farm families. So one of the uh, more progressive um, onion farmers has embedded a white PVC pipe into the ground. So that's how he irrigates now, is under the ground. Cost him a ton of money, but there's no uh, evaporation for better or worse. The, and this is an interesting question. I hope the smart people down here with the higher IQs can help me with. You know, it, Western water law, one of the tenants is if you don't use it, you lose it. So what is the uh, repercussion of efficient water use where you end up not using your entire water right? How does that farmer or rancher then not fear losing uh, forever his or her water right? Before we go to Luke, 
The answer is there's an abandonment list that's drawn up every decade in Colorado, and that's they're starting to work on that now. And there's some boxes you can check uh, to try to show that you didn't abandon your water. Um, and being involved in a conservation program can be one of the grounds for not having your water abandoned. Um, but it's kind of an opaque process. That was one reason I was hanging out with water lawyers all day yesterday. <laughs> Luke. Uh, Luke Runyon, KUNC. <laughs> I don't care carrying my coffee. Need more storage. <laughs> I'm curious what kind of power Northern has in maybe forcing some of that conservation to happen. Like, would Northern ever encourage some of the the participants within its boundaries to do a lawn buyback program or you know? going beyond just incentivizing conservation to actually encouraging some of the participants to take those measures. Thanks, Luke. Not, <laughs> not really. Um, so, so the question being, you know, how far would we go to, to, to entice, encourage, perhaps even mandate? Um, uh, through the Conservancy Act, which is what Northern Water is formed under, um, we have a lot, we have quite a bit of breadth there. Um, we have a responsibility to deliver water, and, many, and much of that water coming from the West Slope, we have an obligation to deliver it responsibly. We've been primarily hands-off on that. We allocate water, and we we know it's putting, being, being put to beneficial use. I think there will be a day where we'll go much farther. We'll be encouraged to go much farther, and I'm hopeful that can be done with uh, uh, enticing folks financially um, to, to, to perhaps be, uh, not that they're being irresponsible, but uh, recognizing we need to make water go farther. Um, so I think that, that day's ahead where, again, I hope we can do it voluntarily with incentives versus a, a mandatory, mandatory approach. Yep. Hi, uh, Nancy Castaldo, uh, independent uh, reporter. Um, this is for Brad. I'm guessing this is basically the same same answer. Um, no purple pipes, no use of gray water at this point in Colorado? No, qu quick, quickly catching on. Um, I think what we're seeing more in our region, what, what Northern Water, what I've been ad advocating for, for a much different reason, um, and it goes like this. Uh, what, what in, in some cases here in Northern Colorado, so I'm thinking north of Broomfield, so the northern tier of the Denver area up north toward the Wyoming border. That's our district, and then east of Nebraska. Um, I'm encouraging us to use existing irrigation supplies uh, when there's development onto existing irrigated farms, use that existing water supply for outdoor use. Um, one, it makes sense, right? The, the water's there already. There's, there's, it's been there for 100 years. Let's use it. But secondly, uh, if we don't find ways to use that now native supply and then marry it up in the house with perhaps other supplies, some of which come from the West Slope, uh, this is what's happening. When we don't tie it up here in northern Colorado, it's getting acquired by the metro area. And so we need to compete. We in the northern Colorado, and this puts parts of Colorado against other parts, but we've got to compete with those interests buying that water, and the way to do it is is to keep that water on that what was once farms and now is other um, other plants. Hopefully, not more turf, but people like some plants, and we need to use our current supplies to do that. The question that's on my mind about this is how many more diversions can the Colorado River stand or handle and live with? With Brad Udall is predicting you know, less water. What's the consequences for the basin as a whole? And I don't, I'm trying every way I can not to frame this as an Arizona versus Colorado issue, 
I'm asking about the upper basin as a whole. I mean, the, the, the river basin as a whole. How much more diversions can we stand and still have the river that's worth anything? If, if I'll start to take a crack yeah. at it, um, and I'm sure Brad's response will be based in more science than mine will be. But um, yeah, I think we're you know we're we're kind of we're at our end, and and it's um, you know there are I think that's why you know at least from American Rivers perspective, um, projects like the Lake Powell pipeline um, are so problematic. It's it's a for those that don't know, it's a project in in Utah. It's a proposal to to pump and pipe uh, almost ninety thousand acre feet of water a year from Lake Powell to St. George, Utah, Washington County, Kane County, um, two counties that use per capita more water than virtually anywhere else in the country, um, and they are projecting massive growth and a massive boom in their economies that has not necessarily been been proven to be true. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's why they're pursuing this project. And it's a project that's being pursued by the state of Utah. And this is at the same time when the, the entire basin um, is, is beginning to kind of collectively understand the hydrologic risk that we could be facing and working to do more with less water, I think as demonstrated by the completion of uh, the drought con contingency plans in May. Um, and I, and I anticipate that we're going to probably see more of those proposals. I think in Colorado, it's, it's really complicated. There are almost 60, I believe, Trans Mountain diversions in the state going back almost 100 years from just ditches to major projects like the Colorado Big Thompson or the Moffitt Project. Um, and there are projects that, that have, have like unfirmed un rights associated with them. And so there, there's... I think at least from the front range, there's there's this there, there's the potential that more water can be taken from from a number of these these projects. Um, I think it's incredibly unlikely that we will see, um, and especially because there's more awareness and there's groups like American Rivers and lots of others that are kind of going to fight to the the end to to prevent a new multi-billion-dollar development that would take water from the Gunnison or from the Yampa. Um, I just, I don't, I don't see that happening. As Brad said, we've had these fights. I think that we're kind of in a more collaborative, um, more strategic place than we have been before. So, um, but yeah, to answer your question, Tony, I don't think much, much more can be taken. You know, I said earlier, yeah, that no one wants to go back to those battles. And I should have prefaced that with no sane person wants to go back to it. <laughs> Yeah, I tend to agree with, with Matt. I, you know, we need to be very careful here. Uh, the potential for train wrecks on this system are quite high under climate change. And the one thing I think maybe the lower basin underappreciates is, you know, most of the front range municipal suppliers are heavily dependent on post-compact water rights, which means that any additional new diversions put those 
water rights at risk. And given that 50% of the water here, municipal water here, roughly in the front range is Colorado River water, that's something the existing municipal providers, it, it puts fear into them. So you, you, in some ways you have a check, I would argue a little bit of a check on the idea that we're gonna do more diversions. And the one thing I've been saying lately is this new planning process in the Colorado River, the 2026 replacement for the interim guidelines needs to seriously consider how you manage this river at 9,000, million acre feet, or you know, a repeat of 2000 to 2005, which effectively would drain the existing reservoirs on the system. How do we? How would we possibly manage our way through that? Um, and if you think about it, new diversions don't really fit very well into that, do they? Bruce. Yep, John. Uh, be that as it may, be aware that there are currently on the table being investigated in the four upper basin states several dozen proposed projects that would take an additional 400,000 acre feet of water out of the Colorado River. Those are ongoing considerations as we speak. Bruce, can I comment? Yeah. Um, you can, and also um, just, just to get John to go one step farther, to what extent can we collaborate our way uh, through, do you think? I mean, we're hearing a lot about that being the Colorado way, um, but um, I, I'm wondering what what do you make of these collaborative processes that are set up and knowing what you know about the political landscape here? No comment. Call me Greta. I'm not good at collaborating, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, um, I'm going to take the role of an alternative voice here on the panel. And Tony, I think uh, in answer to, to your one response and answer your question is that additional consumptive use on the river comes with a, a high degree of risk. And in times when you have high rivers, uh, good storage, et cetera, there could be some more consumptive use on the river. But this panel was kind of teed up to talk about headwaters reservoirs. And I just want to make the point that if you want agriculture to become very efficient, to implement conservation, and in a sense to forego some water, one of the ways to give agriculture the uh, ability to do that is with more high storage in the system where they can keep water high they may or may not use it, but they've got that insurance that they can go back and get it. In the world of uh, turf and landscapes, the risk of underwatering your landscape is pretty low, right? I mean, you can always come back and run the water again at night. But in ag, if you forego that diversion, it's down the river. Good for the river, but it may put you in a, in a situation of risk that you can't recover from. So there may be opportunities for more uh, headwater storage not for increasing consumptive use necessarily, but increasing flexibility, uh, water marketing, water transactions, and ag water conservation. So I wanted to put that on the table. Do you mean reservoirs with uh, pipelines at a million dollars a mile? To, is this no, I'm really thinking of smaller footprint reservoirs. Maybe some of them are reoperations. Maybe they're enlargements, and maybe they're new systems. Hey, if you want to capture flood flows, and high flows, you kind of need to be on the channel, and that's that's problematic. Brad's building two reservoirs now that are off-channel reservoirs, and it's really hard to grab those flood flows on an off-channel reservoir. You're constrained by your infrastructure. Bruce, John, 
Have you all heard about the uh, proposal to undo wilderness to do more water development on Homestake State Creek in Colorado? It ain't going to happen. The wilderness community will rise up even more um, conspicuously than Greta Thunberg to stop any violation of the Wilderness Act of 1964 for the sake of headwater storage. Question. Uh, Dennis Dimmick, SEJ member, former National Geographic. So I'm, I want to ask about another kind of headwaters reservoir. What is the role of groundwater along the Front Range and the West Slope? What do we know about the resource? What's its health? And, and also, like in California, there was, if you were on top of it, you could pump it until it was dry. What is the right situation on groundwater versus surface in the state? Brad, you have insights on that? I'm given the Metro Denver reliance on an awful lot of groundwater now? Yeah. This, with the tables falling? Thanks. So the question was about the role of groundwater. Specifically, I, I understood you say on the eastern slope, vis-a-vis. Right, right. What's up and down? It is. And, and so one of the things that's important to know about Colorado as opposed to California is that we've declared all of our water to be tributary unless proven otherwise. And that means it's in the prior appropriation system. And actually, uh, what you see in the South Platte and the Arkansas alluvial aquifers are sustainable systems because we require uh, groundwater users to replace their depletions. And so we're, ne we're no longer in, in the role of mining those aquifers. Denver Basin Aquifer, that Bruce referred to a different story. The South Metro communities have had, still some have, heavy reliance on those non-renewable aquifers. And the, you know, the current thinking is let's get the base supply on surface water and use the groundwater as our drought storage. And then, of course, there's a lot of thinking now about the idea of aquifer storage and recovery as an underground reservoir that's a non-evaporative surface that, again, takes carbon, but you could pump and put excess flows underground for times of drought later. And uh, there's some good research going on up and down the Front Range right now, and Castle Rock and some of the other munis in uh, Colorado are actually using aquifer storage and recovery as a way to extend their supplies. Hey, Bruce, we do have a reservoir project you forgot to mention about dam removal, Bonnie Reservoir. So we, re we uh, in a, uh, to settle the Republican River case between Kansas, Nebraska, and Colorado, we actually chose to decommission a reservoir on the Eastern Plains, Bonnie Reservoir, that was a flood control reservoir, but also was like the only fishing hole in all of Eastern Colorado, at least for miles and miles. So to great consternation, we removed that, and now... Uh, the environmental, the Nature Conservancy is actually looking just like Windy Gap. Uh, how do we restore that ch the old channel that's now underneath uh, a reservoir? Was not removed for endangered species reasons, but for compact compliance. I think that also goes to this groundwater issue. There's a unique, somewhat odd situation out there where the state, to meet its compact compliance obligations to Kansas and Nebraska, has been uh, buying up wells. Uh, putting acres out of production and taking that groundwater and pumping it in to a depleted surface channel, pumping it into the surface channel uh, to meet the obligations downriver to Kansas and Nebraska. So taking groundwater in the Ogallala, um, which is somewhat shaky aquifer, and putting it into the surface so Colorado is not sued by Kansas and Nebraska. It's an interesting situation out there. And I think there's a Harvard Law case study um, looking at the uh, arrangement on that compact. Creative, Other questions? Finan creative financing, right, but with water. Yeah. Yeah. 
and then and then one other I think another good example regarding groundwater or, or underground storage to increase security and reduce risk is Tucson Arizona has been doing that for quite some time and and are um, in a very good place when it comes to kind of their future water future because of because of that yes so Tom Yelsman from the Center for Environmental Journalism. Um, Brad, you, you said something that kind of snapped my head back. Uh, a repeat of the conditions in 2000 to 2005 would effectively drain the, water, the reservoirs in the system. Um, how much at risk are we of that, and what does that mean? So, I mean, this is the quandary of climate change, right? Stationarity is dead. The statistics of the 20th century no longer, increasingly no longer apply. And we just can't state with any kind of certainty how likely that is, but it's happened once. 2012 and 2013 were similar years, and it thankfully only lasted two. Um, 2012 and 2013, and frankly, 2018 was an awful year as well, but thankfully we got a recovery, at least somewhat of a recovery this year. So, Tom, that's the trick here, or, or the, the quandary of climate change, is that we cannot state with certainty that that these awful conditions, A, will not repeat and will, unfortunately, will not get worse, right? Um, I mean, it's very clear that this system is changing and it's affecting the hydrologic cycle in major ways. And we need to have management in place that can deal with the unknown. We've got about uh, five minutes left. Um, any further questions? Bruce, if there's not, I'd like to kind of just quickly touch on one thing uh, Mr. Fiedler has brought up in terms of this uh, competition, um, kind of putting economic value to our uses of water here in Colorado. Uh, and you pointed out ag versus recreation. I'm not going to dispute your numbers. They, they're likely right on the mark. Um, I applaud, when I think about this future agriculture in Colorado, there is, uh, uh, and, and, and I hear this when I'm being my weekend farmer of a kind of a pot shot of uh, um, growing corn in Colorado. What, what, what's this all about? There's better places to grow corn. Um, I, I can appreciate that angle. We've, uh, we grow corn here as an example in alfalfa, as Reagan alluded to, uh, because it's a great place to grow cattle. Um, that's kind of what it came down to. Where, where I can get some comfort in making a defense to, to, to not think about it being corn, because I think what I see from the younger generation, folks younger than I am, um, and I think of future generations, we won't be growing corn here. I view us uh, applying water to corn today as a placeholder. And someday it will be cabbage. The crops you're seeing in parts of Weld County, it'll extend throughout our state, uh, higher value crops that um, might change, might fill some of our changing uh, dietary uh, needs in the future. Um, if that water leaves the farm today, it is never coming back. Um, so my argument is just hold tight. In 50 years, the corn that I grow today will be something else that might be more uh, suitable for what you have a vision for the future. But I look forward to the younger generation who's making, has, in my opinion, has a much stronger connection to agriculture and local feuds than perhaps my generation and those older. How about that? That just makes me think, why wait for the younger generation? Why not do this now, given these situations that you guys are well, uh, again, I'm familiar with 80 miles east here. It's a little bit different ag world. It's a little bit, uh, farms are a little bit larger. Um, we, we tend in, to agriculture to work around the, 
the economies we're comfortable with and familiar with. Um, some of that vision I have, which will probably happen well after I'm gone, take a lot of labor, at least in today's environment, if you're going to start growing produce and those kind of things, labor that we don't necessarily have here in Colorado at the present time, or future technologies, which hopefully will change that need for some labor. There's some things that just aren't in place. What has changed northeastern Colorado drastically in the last decade is there's two cheese factories, which sounds so simple. It's like, how can two cheese factories change the dynamics on the, on the ground? Um, Loprino cheese is in Greeley, Colorado, and Fort Morgan, Colorado, has changed half the irrigated land in terms of what people are growing, still growing corn, but different types of corn um, to feed the dairy that then feeds the cheese factories. That cheese, those cheese factories will be probably worn out in 30 years, and it'll be a whole new dynamic of what drives irrigated agriculture in northeastern Colorado. It's called Big Macs and pizza. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's also called markets, and we're a capitalistic society, and farmers grow for what the market is. And, you know, there are some market interventions that could make a difference. But the uh, point I want to make about the markets is if we leave – the water market alone, the water will flow out of agriculture. And so to, to keep it in ag is going to take some societal intervention. And the question is, do we have the stomach for that? So final questions, and especially I'm encouraging questions to see to what extent do we have a consensus about whether it makes sense to have new storage here in the Headwaters state uh, as a way to deal with the climate variability? Um, go, go ahead, uh, um, Denning, and then Laura. Yeah. So, Dennis, I guess it's to Brad. It's just you talk about the percentage of decline in stream flow in Colorado. Just in terms of supply, what is the statistical trend in snowpack in the upper basin? You know, there's the database that Phil Mode has done across the western U.S., but what are we looking at long term in terms of the snowpack as a resource in this area over a period of years? You know, off the top of my head, I don't want to answer that because I'll give you a bad, bad answer. Um, but Phil Mode, as you note, you know, 2005 and 2018 study, also a recent University of Arizona study on loss of high-level snowpack. Those studies are always a little problematic because you're trying to tease out precipitation changes from snowpack, right? And the two are definitely linked. Um, I mean, I'm happy to chat with you later or think, think this through, but it's, you know, Dave Cloud did his 2010 study too, which may be of use at this point. Let me mention quickly one boutique idea that's not come up that's kind of fun to think about, and this is sort of beaver reintroduction, right, into high, high areas. And I have no idea actually how well this would work or what it might do, but it's at least intriguing to think, and it gets to the groundwater component, right, and it might actually solve some of these late season, low flow, hot, warm temperature issues. Um, I mean, beavers are fun to think about. As soon as they get on your property, they're dead, right? I mean, people hate them, and you, let's not forget that. But they may help us in some interesting way. Laura. So one of the awkward conversations happening in New Mexico right now on the Rio Grande is we store our water at Elephant Butte and Caballo Reservoirs, which have crazy evaporation rates. And so people are talking about, well, why don't we move? storage upstream where there's less evaporative. I mean, is this a conversation that we should be having on the Colorado River? So if you, you haven't heard the old line that Elephant Butte is where New Mexicans spread their waters to dry, <laughs> I will share it with you. <laughs> you know, 
engineers have studied these reservoir sites for 100 plus years, right? We know where they are. Oftentimes, they're not, they haven't been built for really good reasons. And, and uh, that's what I've been trying to hint at here. I mean, it's delightful to think about all this new storage we might create, but there's a long history of why these things aren't there. And it may be environment, it may be, you know, other issues around people not wanting them there. I mean, that's frequently the case. The Narrows Dam here in this state is a classic case where the locals just hated this thing. And they were farmers and ranchers there um, who nominally, you know, you would think would be in favor of storage. Did I hear right? You're saying that these, some of these water lawyers are saying that because there could be a compact call on the upper basin, where, where the upper basin has to give a whole lot of water, you, you want to build these, these storage as an insurance policy? Is that is that is that what they were saying? Um, a better question for Brad, being just a reporter, but what I'm hearing is that lawyers in the business of representing people who want to line up water supplies are saying that those folks, big utilities, are concerned about being able to deliver if they get hit with another dry year or if we have some sort of curtailment related to uh, compact deals with other states downriver. Down um, well, and, and that's embedded in the, the Drakatichi plan. I mean, the, the upper basin, there's a concept in which uh, uh, we'll take a lot of details to work out, but there's a half a million acre feet that uh, would be earmarked if everyone can get along. And I think there's some optimism might happen, a half million acre feet in Powell for many of us, Northern Water included. Our board is very serious about how are we going to use, perhaps not, hopefully not for a lot, a lot of years, but in some years, lose, use less water. And uh, in so doing, can we park that water in Powell to in some way uh, lessen, hopefully uh, uh, never face a compact call, but if it did come online, something to mitigate that uh, type of an action. Yeah, I was just, uh, was, was just going to say, for those, the drought contingency plan um, allows the upper basin states to, in the upper basin, to, to pursue or investigate a demand management program and establish a protected pool in Lake Powell that wouldn't be subject to releases downstream. And it's, it's uh, something that, from our perspective, uh, holds a lot of promise. It's a tool that I think American Rivers believes, and I think many others, that kind of we need to have in our toolbox. We need to figure out a way that, that we can you know, we can produce conserved consumptive use water when we need it and we can compensate it and we, it can be temporary and it can be voluntary. Um, and just really happy to hear Brad say that, that that's, um, that's something that Northern is thinking about because one of the issues with it, and so it, it's a kind of a, uh, and it's a, I think a pretty significant barrier is that, you know, forever when we've tried to produce conserved water um, or to find a solution, it's, it's kind of always been on the backs of agriculture and, and, um, I think one of the real opportunities with a potential demand management program or a system conservation program is uh, is going to be it's going to be dependent on the participation of 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 other water users as well. So, Bruce, I think you're ready for a final statement. Can I make one, and that'll be my last shot at the mic, and then we can pass it. I just want to make a comment about um, storage, since that's been the theme of the conversation. Colorado has about five plus million acre feet of storage, maybe six, but do you think it's that much? So the snowpack storage is probably on the order of 20 million plus acre feet of storage. And if the future looks like a future with much less snowpack and more rain, 
we lose that 20 million, some part, some fraction of that 20 million acre feet of storage. And having upstream high altitude storage is, is one way to compensate or mitigate the loss of that snowpack storage. Uh, thank you. It's, this has been a great discussion. Um, uh, maybe to put something in perspective, we, we I think I, I would if I was to leave this conversation, if I was one of you, perhaps I think, oh, my gosh, a lot of storage is going to be coming online. Um, I, I don't see that to be the future. And the past doesn't necessarily suggest that either. Uh, since I think in 1987, there's only been 12, if not 13 projects, uh, larger than 50,000 acre feet storage projects built in the 17 western states since 1985-86. Um, two of those are in Colorado, the Animus Little Potter Project and Wolford Mountain. Um, this is not happening at great speeds for, for perhaps good reason. I think there will be, in fact, there's permits, almost all the permits in place for a couple more projects. Um, I, I don't know if we'll see anything grander than those uh, anytime soon. So I, I just don't Please don't leave this, in my opinion, getting the sense that uh, Northern Waters out there going to put another dam up tomorrow. It's just uh, we don't see it in the cards. So despite all my or pessimism, I'll quote Madeleine Albright, who says she's an optimist who worries a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's actually a lot going, good things going on in this state and within the water management realm. And I'll, I'll tell you, this state has more good things going on than any other western state. And it... It basically has come about, I think, because of all the attorneys that are involved in the quantification that we've had, and frankly, over the last 15 years, the intense dialogue we've had amongst all water users in this state. And so that's kind of what gives me optimism that we're going to actually do the right thing here. Uh, uh, maybe after we exhaust every other possible alternative, in the words of Churchill, but I actually do think this state has a lot of good things going on in the water realm. Other closing notes? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I don't mean to bring you guys down, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't uh, a study get done that determined that the amount of methane being produced by a half-full Lake Powell and warming waters creates more heat-trapping gases than the, thank goodness, soon-to-be-retired most polluting coal-fired power plant in the West, the Navajo Generating Station, and methane traps heat 30 to 50 times more effectively than carbon dioxide. So there's another good reason why not to build damn dams. <laughs> so um, applause for the panel. It's a lot of public service to come out here and engage. Thank you guys.